This is Epicenter, episode 196 with guest Arthur Falls. This episode of Epicenter is brought to you by Shapeshift.io, the easiest, fastest, and most secure way to swap your digital assets. Don't run the risk of leaving your funds on a centralized exchange. Visit Shapeshift.io to get started. And by Jax. Jax is the user-friendly wallet that works across all your devices and handles both Bitcoin and Ether. Go to JAX.io and embrace the future of cryptocurrency wallets. Hi, welcome to Epicenter, the show which talks about the technologies, projects, and startups driving decentralization and the global blockchain revolution. My name is Sebastian Couture. And my name is Brian Fabian Crane. We're here today with uh, Arthur Falls. Probably many of you do know Arthur Falls, especially if you are avid podcast listeners. I have known Arthur Falls or Arthur Falls' majestic voice for many years. Uh, I remember hearing he did this podcast back in maybe 2014 called Beyond Bitcoin which was, uh, was really excellent. He did very this in-depth interviews. Actually, one of the pe- people who was on that podcast once was Meher Roy, uh, which was a really good episode. So I remember Meher from, from that as well. This is actually, I think, uh, part of the reason why I wanted him or we wanted him as a, as a co-host. I remember listening to that episode of uh, uh, in Berlin, actually running in Berlin and... Um, when I, you know, when we met for a conference at some point, and then uh, thinking we should, you know, we should have this guy on the show. Oh, guys! <laughs> well, it's a pleasure to be here. Like, I mean, it's. I think it's probably exactly the same. You find yourself having like a content creator crush on all the other podcasters around who are doing good work. <laughs> exactly, and so since then, since Beyond Bitcoin, right, which which doesn't exist anymore, but then uh, he started, or Arthur started some other podcasts. One is Ether Review which again has become, uh, you know, certainly the, the leading Ethereum, you know, purely Ethereum focused podcast. Uh, and then State Change, uh, which is kind of a that consensus was, project. Yeah, that was, that was uh, consensus specific, that one, yeah. And he's been doing this world tour uh, to explore all things blockchain. He was in Berlin too, we met up there. Uh, actually, randomly, Sebastian was there at the same time. So yeah, we have, we're having on uh, Arthur on to talk about lots of things, blockchain, uh, and his, his amazing lessons from his trip around the world. So many lessons, so many lessons. <laughs> hey, it's really good to be here, guys, as well. And it's funny you mentioned the, uh, that, uh, that episode that had Maher Roy on it, because he wrote that white paper, An Architecture for the Internet of Money, which was about actually using um, like permissioned blockchains or uh, in his case he was thinking of hyperledger or like the original hyperledger before it was an ibm thing or uh, or a ripple ledger and also uh, their codius project which had like all these cool things like smart oracles and stuff like that and i think they might actually be rebooting that but it was a really cool his uh, idea of a permission blockchain world was like pretty pretty on point i thought at least at the time and that was actually the last episode of beyond bitcoin and that was like that was it i was like that's a, it's 
it's a permission world. It's going to be it. This guy's figured it out. But, um, <laughs> well, and then Ethereum came along and, you know, it was time for a new podcast. Out came the microphone again. How did you become a podcaster? What was your journey towards that? Or to that? Well, I got into Bitcoin in 2013, start of 2013. I was in Melbourne and I was unemployed. I was just there because... Sometimes you can get a good job that pays well in, uh, in Aussie and uh, I had a bunch of friends there, basically economic, economic refugees from New Zealand. And so we were, um, which is a mean thing to say, New Zealand's, New Zealand's fine. But um, we went there, we were all there and uh, I just could not get a job and I wound up on, a, uh, on the couch for a year just learning about Bitcoin, basically. And, um, and then come 2014, it was like, man, I've spent so much time learning about this weird internet technology money thing. I've got to do something with this, you know, otherwise that was a completely wasted year. And so I created uh, Beyond Bitcoin and uh, the rest is history. No, wait, wait, wait. Now you're, you're totally jumping over the part where you used to fish lobster. <laughs> <laughs> right, I am. That was actually when I, I'd stopped. Uh, I'd stopped lobster fishing then. Um, just because it was like, what am I doing with my 20s on a frozen island in the middle of the Atlantic? And um, 60 people out there. It was like the most isolated place ever. But what was really good about it is you had all this spare time to do strange hobbies and uh, research. And so, you know, I used to read a lot. And then actually after um, 2015, uh, 2014, I made Beyond Bitcoin and I was working as an arborist. And then I... Um, 2015, I went back to fishing because it was the only thing I'd ever been financially successful at. But I also started a little arborist Wait, business. Wait, an arborist is somebody who like grows tree? Or what's an arborist? Like uh, tree surgeon. So climbing, felling, like problem okay. tree removals. <laughs> not not someone who you know takes advantage of arbitrage opportunities that no no i'd never i'd never even conceived of that as a potential uh, as a potential income stream before uh, for all this this carry on uh, got it got really interesting yeah so wh why podcasting like well you know from being interested in in bitcoin and wanting to start a podcast about bitcoin like well, did you have a did you have, have you done podcasting before did you have some kind of interest in in podcasting no, nah, but I did speech and drama when I was in high school. Not when I was, I must have, actually, I think it was before I was in high school. And then um, I got like some diploma after leaving high school and that. And, um, and honestly, it's, I mean, it's a bit different for you guys because you're in Europe, right? But if you're in New Zealand, like there's no way you're ever going to meet anyone who knows anything about this stuff. So it was actually 18 months after I first got into Bitcoin that I met the first person who actually knew what it was. And that was actually at Bitcoin South in 2014, which is a, um, uh, this conference we had. And it was suddenly it was like, oh my God, all these people, you know? But uh, yeah, just to meet people basically. And also I don't have any, uh, any relevant skills to the industry. Uh, so I just had to make one up. And it's funny, if you just like pick an area where there's a skill shortage and you don't even have to be particularly good in order to excel. So. That was kind of the uh, kind of the thought process behind it, and access. So, right, you want to meet the people, right? And so even when you were producing uh, those podcasts, you were you're still working as as an arborist, and then you're working doing fishing as well. Yeah, or, I actually used was to... fishing during a break from from the podcasting. Well, no, no. So I um, 
let's see, when did I do it? I finished up in like January or February 2015. And then I moved out to the island again. And um, honestly, I was broke as well. This is like, it was like, I, it was because New Zealand, you can't really, you don't earn that much money there, especially not if you're at the bottom of the uh, kind of labor ladder. And um, I, uh, I just got a credit card with a $2,000 limit, uh, bought a ticket to Maine and uh, to this <laughs> and, um, and got a chainsaw and just started, uh, started felling trees and um, got on a boat. And I used to record out of, um, so they have terrible internet out there. But they have a high speed connection to what they call the neighborhood house, which is like a, it's kind of like a sort of like you might imagine a town hall. It has a little library in there. It's kind of there in case something terrible happens to your own house. You've got this kind of large assembly area where you can go. And, um, and so I used to go in there and just uh, and record using that connection because it was really fast. But it was hilarious because it was just so, um, so completely isolated and alien and environment, especially to the relative luxury of <laughs> kind of high-speed connections in the developed world. So not where is not developed. <laughs> where where so are you in Maine? It's off, uh, so, so you know Mount Desert Island, you know Acadia National Park? It's like same, uh, same latitude as Nova Scotia. Yeah. And so you've got like tons of islands just up there and, um, and they're, all, they're all lobster fishing islands. Yeah, well, I mean, I I am from that part of the world, so yeah. I mean, I'm, I think my family's from from New Brunswick, so yeah, it's it's actually uh, that's pretty, right, pretty you're close right by. there. Yeah, I mean, it's a little a little more southern, but yeah. This is pretty actually. This is a good image, though. So, so you were like 2015. You were there in the middle of nowhere, going out in your boat, fishing lobster. You're coming back, and then you, you took the next island to this little library or something, and then you did these interviews with people producing this podcast episode about Ethereum and... In a nutshell, in a nutshell, that, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's what it was like. It was, it was interesting. I mean, it's a hard life out there. I mean, it's like the simple life and you know, the simple life sometimes is just amazing, but sometimes it's your own personal hell. And uh, that was, it was like a constant oscillation between that living out in those, uh, in the main islands. But yeah, no, it is, it's a romantic image. Did you at at the time when you're you know producing these podcasts of this little community house like in the sticks in Maine? Did you do you think that you know what you were doing you know, could you gain some traction and and become influential as it as it did? I never uh, I never thought about it like that. I just it was just a way to meet the people and get closer to the technology. I kind of had an inkling that something might happen with it one day, but it was never. Uh, I never conceived of it. I was on actually like a, I was on a bit of a five year plan. I was like, well, I'll go out here, I'll start a business, I'll save some money, and then, um, you know, and I actually got a tattoo. I actually got that tattoo. Can you see it? It's kind of like hard to, um, like right when I kind of decided to give up and become a fisherman, and um, that year, and then I got, I was hired by Consensus, uh, like about a month after getting it, and it's never seen the deck of a working boat. So for those listening, that was an anchor tattoo on uh, on Arthur's forearm. <laughs> it's, you know, it's a typical kind of fisherman thing. It, it is a very romantic image, you know. He, he's you know for those who haven't who those who have never seen Arthur, like Arthur's this pretty burly guy. Like he's got a plaid shirt on right now with a beard, and he has a freaking anchor tattoo in his arm. And there you go. Like you know, of course you're fishing lost. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's uh, you know everyone needs to earn a crust. Yeah. I mean, it's funny, the, the difference in experience that you have coming from different places in the world, 
like and uh, and just even generationally is massive. I mean, if you come from these like these big nations like the US or like these large like like large kind of unions like uh, like Europe, you have so much opportunity. So you know you can kind of you can do just about anything and then find your niche. But in uh, in New Zealand, you're one of four and a half million in a really small uh, economy with nothing around it except for Australia. And you've actually got to go out and find your fortune, really. And uh, and so people do it all different ways. Like um, a lot of people go to the mines in uh, Western Australia, um, and a lot of people go to London. And um, yeah, I went to Maine for some it's reason. It's a pretty similar similar picture to where I'm from. A lot of people, you know, just get up and leave and go work in mines or something like out, out in Western Canada. So. So uh, you know, right now you're you're still. What what are you still producing now as a podcast? Uh, so I'm I've canned um, I've canned state change because part of the reason I did the two podcasts was I didn't want to have that image. I didn't want people to think that the ether review was going to be corrupted by the fact that I was working with consensus. Um, but at the end of the day, so much great stuff is happening at consensus that it doesn't really make sense to. You know, I wound up not putting so much consensus stuff on uh, the Ether review that I, as I normally would, which is totally not in the interest of anyone. So I, uh, so I've canned that. I'm I'm doing a lot more uh, a lot more Ether review now. I've a I have this editor who's helping me out. She's an audio. Uh, she has a master's in audio journalism. Her name's Alexis Kenyon. Um, she's uh, from the states, and she just does an amazing job, um, and. I'm kind of thinking that it might be time for a slightly more ambitious content strategy. But for now, I'm just doing extra, uh, extra ether review. I got, it's kind of weird. You get on these threads. One thing I find about content creation, you guys might, uh, might identify with this, is you know, I was never aware that there was even an audience, really. I was just interviewing people and using that as a tool to pursue my own interest, and, which is kind of why it's never been sponsored. Part of the reason that it's so rewarding making content is that you can use it as a way to, it's like as a personal exploration of a subject. And um, recently I just became really interested in the legal side of all this stuff. And I started asking people if they'd want to come on this uh, legal discussion call. And they, a whole bunch of people said they did. Uh, um, a lot of them from actually Australia. I found like a lot of great lawyers in Australia were interested, but I got a whole bunch of random people from all over the place. And then I started just kind of networking in the law space, in the legal space. And, uh, and I was like, wow, I've got so much legal content. I'm going to actually have to kind of brand this slightly separately because otherwise people are going to be like, what is this like a law podcast now or something? So I, uh, I started making ether review legal. Um, it was, you know, that, that's the title. It's not that Ether Review is illegal in the first place. But um, I, uh, and so I kind of categorized those episodes differently. And I've got a whole bunch. I've still got a bunch more to come out with like awesome lawmakers in the, from Australia and all this stuff about uh, how they're uh, about their approach to blockchain. And it's, um, they've recently had a, have a, uh, a bipartisan initiative, a lot like they have in the States to, um, to push it in Australia, part of the, uh, part of the big race to, um, to become dominant in kind of a new technological field. And um, so it's kind of, I found that serialized content, if you split it off and uh, do a whole bunch of uh, whole bunch of episodes about a single subject is a really good way of getting 
really deep in a specific subject and i'd like to pursue a bit of that actually look at like different things like your uh your interledger protocols and um and kind of the some of these more obscure uh consensus protocols that are out there like uh like snow white that they have up in uh in cornell and there's MIT's got something and there's a university in Australia that's got something as well that I just keep meaning to go and really dig into, but you just never get around to it unless you uh, make it a uh, make it a mission. That sounds really, really great. I mean, yeah, of course, if, I agree. If you're going to if you're going to do something that's going to be extremely valuable to you know, a niche of people is producing you know, a specific type of content about one topic and then you get, you know, you, you get to be super well versed in that in that uh in that one specific area, uh, which is something that, I mean, we, we've never really done, I guess, probably for, uh, because of lack of time or, uh, uh, you know, I mean, uh, it's, it's, we've always kind of focused on interviews, but, um, but doing this type of thing, I, I, I can, I can see would be extremely valuable, uh, to the, you know, to, just to the ecosystem in general as for people coming in, you know. This episode is brought to you by Shapeshift, the world's leading trustless digital asset exchange. Quickly swap between dozens of leading cryptocurrencies including Bitcoin, Ether, Zcash, Gnosis, Monero, Golem, Augur, and so many more. When you go to shapeshift.io, you simply select your currency pair, give them your receiving address, send the coins and boom. Shapeshift is not your traditional cryptocurrency exchange. You don't need to create an account. You don't need to give them your personal information and they don't hold your coins. So you are never at risk from a hacker or other malicious actor. Shapeshift has competitive rates and is even integrated in some of your favorite wallet apps like Jax. So you can swap your digital assets directly within your wallet just as easily as putting on your slippers. Whenever you see that good looking fox, you know that's where Shapeshift is. So to get started, visit shapeshift.io and start trading. And we'd like to thank Shapeshift for their support of Epicenter. So in, in, in all of this, you know, these interviews that you've produced and uh, interviewing all these people for the various podcasts that you've done, um, can, can you kind of, kind of point at what are the things that you find have been most valuable or you know, what are the things that you've learned that have been most valuable to you either as a, you know, as a, you know, personally or as a content producer or just as working someone working in this space one thing i always look for is or one thing i always make an effort to do is just to always be trying to change my mind you know um because what i find is it's so easy to be dogmatic and it's so easy to be seduced by a lot of there are so many smart people in this place in this space you know if you're just a normal guy and you're trying to figure out what is actually going on you find that even a large volume of information won't necessarily mean that you get it right. Um, I thought like the end of Beyond Bitcoin was really interesting because when I, I was really unimpressed with, um, I didn't really think that like Bitcoin or any of the stuff that was being built back then was ever going to work. And it was just because of usability. I didn't even anticipate the scaling problems. I mean, that I just kind of presumed that it would be fine. Um, you know, surely you would scale, right? <laughs> you know, but, uh, but, there was just such bad usability back then and there still hasn't been a lot of improvement. And so to me, it was very clear that Bitcoin was never going to be a payment, uh, a successful payment system. And the rest of the stuff was still just kind of, it was still science fiction. And then uh, when I read Meheroy's white paper and I also spoke to the guys uh, at Ripple Labs, the Codius team, and it was like, man, this is, this is, and also the Hyperledger guys, like this is how it's actually going to happen, right? Because 
this whole decentralization thing is actually building something in parallel to a very functional system. So if you take, for example, uh, New Zealand and, and maybe Canada, but maybe not, I don't know, let's just say, <clears throat> I trust the government here. Like, I trust them. They're sweet. I don't really trust the police quite so much, but I mean, you know, they're still great. I mean, I can't complain. And, um, and so I'm quite happy for those guys to be running the show and, uh, and managing identity systems and all this kind of stuff. I, I trust them explicitly and so when we think of like the decentralization paradigm or or model if you think of it as a like as a trust network you're building something so that you don't have to trust people but i do trust people so it's like why don't we just get the government to run a uh to run a node and um and then you know maybe a couple watchdog agencies and there's your scaling um why do why do we have to uh, why do we have to rely on this? Um, why do we have to circumvent trust? And so, coming from that kind of background, obviously that doesn't apply everywhere. And I know it's the absolute antithesis of this space. And I mean, you know, I'm I'm an anarchist, right? But I'm also a pragmatist. And um, so I just really thought that at the end of the day, this was going to be a uh, that model the the. The federated model was going to work out in the end. The, the permission model was going to work out in the end. And um, Meher did such a great illustration of it in that paper. And so I just kind of... And Tim Swanson as well. I was talking to Tim Swanson too much. I was hanging with a bad crowd, guys. And, um, <laughs> and so I kind of decided that, yeah, that's what it's going to be. And uh, But then when Ethereum came out, it was so great to just have my mind completely changed. By, uh, by everything that was going on there. And honestly, it continues to change all the time. Um, it, all the time. More, more today than ever before do I find myself changing my mind. Just every day. Yeah, no, I, I, I had a somewhat similar thing where I also felt like, okay, public blockchains, Bitcoin and stuff weren't, weren't really going to work around 2014 and and then I joined the uh, Ares Industries, right, which later became Monax, you know, kind of out of this idea as well, because I felt like, okay, permission blockchains is really kind of the way to go. But, you know, I mean, we're going to get to speak about this a little bit later. I think especially ICOs and crowdfunding have just turned this on the head again and have unleashed so much funding for public blockchain stuff that it's just, you know, it's not even, there's no even way to compete with the pace of innovation at all, I think, when it comes to the the permission blockchain world. Yeah, it's not, although, although having some slightly, some inside information that probably I, I shouldn't be too um, too liberal with because I'm not 100% sure what is, uh, what's for publication or not. But there is some huge money going into uh, the development of public blockchain tech. Because the thing is like, a lot of the a lot of people i think who have all of this uh, you mean private this, blockchain tech yeah, yeah 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 private blockchain tech um because all these guys they have all of these tokens you know be they be it ether bitcoin or or whatever the hell coin um pardon my french um it's uh, no offense sebastian um they uh <laughs> they um i think that there's some hedging of bets going on yeah, there's some investment in different paradigms and there's so much money now. Yeah, there's unlimited money now. You know, there's no way you couldn't spend money as fast as this thing 
is gaining speed. And I think a lot of people are recognizing that. A lot of big players are recognizing that. And I think that that is really what differentiates a successful uh, platform from an unsuccessful one is the, uh, the ability of the investors to effectively deploy their, uh, their capital. And a lot of it is going into these, um, a lot of it is going into uh, kind of technological diversification and these, uh, and these permission systems. So let's, let's talk a little bit about your world trip. How, how long was it? How did you decide to, to do this blockchain world tour? Yeah, well, that's funny because this is where we actually finally uh, met in person. But, uh, you know, there, there was conference week. There was the Coindesk Consensus Conference, uh, Ethereal, the, the Consensus Consensus Conference. And then um, there was also Token Summit was going on. And right before all of that, there was going to be a, there was this, this series of events in, uh, in India and so it was like, that's sort of on the way, right? I mean, not at all, but like, may as well give it a go. And, um, and so on the way over, because I was going to go over, record some podcasts, whatever, you know, meet some people, uh, reconnect with the mothership that is uh, consensus at large. And I was like, but, you know, it's going to cost me a lot of money to do this, you know, to go from New Zealand to the other side of the world and, um, you know, accommodate yourself, et cetera. It winds up being five grand or something for two weeks. So I'm like, why don't we just, you know, why don't we just extend the, uh, extend the trip as long as I'm actually flying to that part of the world and, um, and interview everyone. And so I just, uh, I pitched the idea to, to boss man Joe and he was, uh, he'd hate being called that. Um, and he said, yeah, sounds like a good idea. I think he was just like, whatever man on that day, <laughs> like, whatever you're doing, Arthur, just, just go for it. Um, and uh, he, uh, and so, so I, Flew to Mumbai with my with my little little DSLR camera and all my recording gear, and um, interviewed a few people there. Kind of got my got my feet about me and went to then um, went on to uh, went on to New York and I just kind of got the idea that yeah this could be a really great mini documentary series about a whole bunch of different subjects and so. Uh, I wound up booking th all around the states, through Europe, and then back through, um, and then back through um, Dubai, and then Singapore on the way back to New Zealand, and uh, and yeah, interviewing. I interviewed about ninety people, or just about ninety people on the whole trip. And how many countries? Um, let's see. It was U.S., uh, U.S., Iceland. Iceland. I went there accidentally. That's a hilarious story. Um, Holland. Uh, Germany, London, which is in Britain, uh, <laughs> um, UAE, and then Singapore. And I always meant to go to Australia, but I just never got around to it because it's right there and you never go to what's on your doorstep. So how did you accidentally get into Iceland? Well, so I was at the airport and um, that, you know, it was Newark, you know, so I'd done that classic thing where I was going to JFK and I was driving to JFK and I was just like, oh no, I checked on my phone. It's in bloody Newark. And so I had this $150 taxi from just about at JFK to, uh, to Newark Airport. And I got there and it's like, there's this huge line and there's only one person at the desk. And it's just like, oh man, you know, are you guys all going to, are you guys, cause I, I was going to London, but I had a stop over in Iceland. And it's like, are you guys all going to, uh, on this Iceland flight? And it's like, yeah, I know. I don't know that we're going to get on. Like this is taking forever. And then this guy comes in behind me, like exactly the same situation. 
like and totally exhausted running and carrying all these bags and it was this and um he was kind of behind me in line and we were just talking about it and uh, you know how we were probably going to miss his flight and uh, i was like so what do you do and he's like oh, i'm a data center engineer <laughs> he's like what do you do and i'm like oh, i'm into this kind of data century stuff yeah i didn't know i you know i did just didn't want to get into it and he's just like oh yeah 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 what uh cryptocurrency and i was like yeah he's like yeah i uh i work for genesis mining um I'm their main data data center engineer, actually. And uh, it was this guy, Chris Hast. And he was like, you should come to, uh, we were just talking about, you know, just, you know, just yarning. And he was like, you should come to, come to Iceland. Just don't go on to London. I've got, there's this great place where I stay. You should just uh, crash there and I'll show you the facility. And, uh, and I was like, sure, why not? I mean, that's what I'm here for. And so hung out with this guy for a few days and just had hilarious adventures in Iceland. Sun never sets. Um, yeah, it was uh, it was awesome, and to see those the inside of those mining operations is really eerie. You know, it's kind of we're we're in this ivory tower where we just enjoy the um, enjoy the the fruits of all of that uh, pointless computation, but uh, to actually go down and go down there and see it happening was really awesome. So, what does it feel like? To, or in what way was it eerie to see that? It's just a totally different side of it. And also, I've never seen so many graphics cards, you know? Like, I've got a graphics... I don't know where it is. I've got a graphics card around here somewhere, and I'm... Do, do you remember when you were a kid, and you bought all these, like, you built your first computer, and you had all the components, and it comes in the box, and it's like, oh, wow, the CVU, this is so cool. It's a Core 2 Duo, you know? Or, like, <laughs> like all those... When you get it, and it comes, and it's so exciting, and you open up the graphics card, and you look at it, and you hold it, and it's just like, Wow. This is so powerful. I'm going to play One so point. many games with this. <laughs> yeah, oh, this is going to be great. Like, what a weight this is. I'm going to use up all my time. Like, you know, 1 billion transistors. That is crazy. Just blows the mind and you look at it and you're like, wow, that is a, that is a marvel. And you just get this warm feeling. Um, like Meanwhile, they have hundreds of thousands of these just spread out. <laughs> like, it's just a commodity. So many. I mean, it's it's really weird, and it's actually the one of the weirdest things to learn about with mining is that it's about it's all about sourcing graphics cards and how quickly you can hook them up. Because if you expend that capital, and then don't you know you're comparing that capital expenditure to the performance of the highest performing asset in the world, right? Which is uh, Bitcoin or or Ether. So you need to actually get that stuff hooked up and you need to get the fastest gear the most cost effective hooked up as quickly as possible because everyone else is competing with you and i remember um speaking to um actually that's that's oh yeah so so here's a tangential story um so i mean that's what makes it really uh that's what makes it really eerie is because you you see all this uh you see all this stuff and you see the inside of these operations that are so competitive so competitive it boggles the mind um this guy uh, Timo Hunker, who's a, he works for String Labs. He's a cryptographer. Um, he developed uh, ASIC Boost, which was part of this big controversy, you know, uh, the scaling controversy. Yeah. So Timo Hunker, he's a, he's a guy who's been around, and he was working for TerraHash. He was trying to found. He was one of the founders of TerraHash back in 2014, or I think they founded it in 2013, and they wanted to design their own ASIC. And so they did this. They got it taped out the uh, engineering company that did it for them basically said that it was going to perform, have, uh, have half the heat consumption that it wound up having. 
And because it was so um, so competitive, they paid to have all of the PCBs and packaging sent to them, uh, you know, like assembled and sent to them in advance of actually receiving the chips. And so the, uh, the power supply hardware on the actual PCBs couldn't support the same perform- the performance that they'd projected. And so they wound up with all of these slow ASICs and um, that they're trying to sell. And then a major investor pulled out who had like, who's going to buy, you know, 10 million uh, ASICs or whatever, uh, $10 million worth of ASICs. And so suddenly they're in the situation where they're like, wow, we've got to plug these damn things in. And so they started flying all around the country, plugging the stuff in. And he described the sensation of feeling like, wow, I mean, I've got to get these things plugged in because if I go to sleep, it's going to cost me $100,000. And like that is the, you do see how efficient and how well refined those, that, that operation in Iceland is compared to, you know, the Litecoin miner that you ran <laughs> in, in your bedroom, you know, over the winter. Yeah, that's definitely a, a weird side to this. You know? and, and especially if, if you think about where this industry is going to go and let's say proof of work continues to have you know this role well with bitcoin right if bitcoin's going to succeed by definition unless there's a huge change it will continue having this dominant role the idea that this is going to scale to i remember i think somebody told me uh, that the bitcoin network now consumes as much electricity as san francisco and if you think of the scaling another hundred times and all of a sudden a huge amount of the global resources are just like putting out these pointless hashes to compete in this crazy race. It is such a weird concept and a weird image to, to think of. It's not that much power, actually. Um, I, mean, I mean, I know that's, that's also like a ridiculous statement to make. But I was, inter- I was interviewing this guy, David Sorensibo of uh, IOTA. And for one, it was uh, just, uh, you know, it was actually on the trip. Actually, it was in Berlin at uh, Dimitri de Jung's house, uh, who works for Big Chain DB. Anyway, I'm interviewing this guy, and he is describing putting ASICs in, uh, in IoT devices, and it sounded ludicrous to me uh, for IOTA. And it still does, to be honest, but it, we, when we were talking about it, we kind of realized, or I kind of realized, that if you divide that power consumption, the power consumption of San Francisco, over all IoT devices, you only you wind up with, you can actually reduce it to a kind of a battery life limitation or something. And it's probably not that much. If you think of all of the IoT devices in the world and what they consume in terms of electricity, even though they're very small, there's so many of them, uh, it, it winds up being spread out so thinly that it doesn't even really matter. And there's so much power in the world. There is so much electricity being generated. And uh, I mean, so to, for example, I know it seems like... Uh, we, there's an aluminium smelter in the bottom of New Zealand, down the, down in the bottom of the South Island, and it's not profitable. But they built all of this infrastructure in order to run the damn thing. And if they turn it off, all of the pipes go freeze up with aluminium, and uh, and it's just this, it's got to be demolished. And so they've got the situation where they're like, wow, we really don't want to just we do really don't want to shut this thing down, but it's costing us a lot of money, and they have nothing nothing else to use all of this power for, maybe ten percent of uh, New Zealand's power generation. And I think there's a lot of that because it costs a lot to transport power. You know, you think of it as just plugging into the wall, but it's not like that at all. So there's a lot of surplus power around the place that can be, uh, that can be directed toward computation. And so it's, 
those kind of little nooks and crannies in the world are going to suck up all of this, uh, all of that power consumption, I reckon. All right. Uh, I'm not sure that entirely makes sense to me. But... Uh... <laughs> Well, because the thing is, right, when you lose power, you lose a lot of power in the transmission of electricity. So, like, for, for that aluminium smelter, they've built a huge hydroelectric dam and the smelter that has to be also next to, a, uh, next to the ocean. And then what they found is that Australia can make it, can do it cheaper than us. And so we actually have all of this infrastructure around an ultra-high energy consumption industry that is not competitive in our environment. And so what you have is this, uh, is this kind of sweet spot where what are you going to do? Shut down a couple of turbines on the hydroelectric dam, shut down this like huge um, facility, and then you're going to have just lose a bunch of jobs and not be creating any economic benefit. And there are little pockets like that all over the world where just through weird admin, you've got a, uh, an opportunity to get super cheap power or even free power. Um, so it's yeah I mean I think that's the story largely also what's happening in China you know, that they're, at least that's what I've heard right? that they have a lot of subsidies to build things right? to build resources and build infrastructure and then they would build all these hydro uh, you know all these power plants in all kinds of places anticipating that some city is going to spring up or some development and then that doesn't happen and you have all of a sudden a power plant there that's already been built, so the kind of the cost is, is written off for that, but then, you know, the electricity is not being used. So you can go there, plug in those Bitcoin miners, and, uh, you know, you can use that. But of course, you, and, you know, to some extent, sure, that's true. But if you think of the value of Bitcoin going up and up and up, right, then presumably at some point also this free excess electricity will be uh, kind of used up and, and you will actually have, you know, real real costs there yeah real costs it's weird to think that those you know you think about it as just plugging it plugging it into the wall socket you know plugging your miner into the wall socket but really it's that game is so competitive it's about finding it's about finding little places in the world where power is cheap and it has low humidity and the right climate and all these kind of little things so arthur you you traveled all around the world, right? You saw all these different aspects of blockchain, which, you know, we also see in, in kind of different ways reading about it. And, and quite obviously, I think to anybody listening here, you know, we are at, at a very special moment and at a historic moment in this in this industry. It has really gone mainstream to an extent that I, I guess many of us anticipated, right? We, we thought this would come, but when it actually happens, it still feels strange and very different. So what are the, the kind of surprising aspects in which this has expressed itself during your trip or, you know, the things that you, you think like, okay, you know, this is, it's happening here in this way that I, I didn't, wasn't aware of before. And I can only really see because I'm here physically and I'm seeing this and I'm not just reading on Coindesk or speaking with people on Skype. I think it's the uh, awesome question. Uh, so many layers to that one. I think what I found really interesting was actually meeting a lot of the people who do this work and the two most interesting groups I found or the two most interesting things to compare were uh, the investment funds and their investment theses were really interesting uh, and then the actual teams that were building the technology and how healthy those teams were, the actual culture 
Um, and the general enthusiasm and happiness of an office. So, and I know that it sounds like quite weird, but the, um, so when I saw one team that I really liked, so consensus is like this awesome place. It's like this giant, like, it's like a hive of activity, uh, when you're there. I mean, the, the, uh, the Brooklyn consensus offices and, it's a really exciting place to be, but everyone's working on these different projects. So sometimes you can't tell exactly who's doing what. And, um, but to go to see a team like, um, like Big Chain DB or the String Labs guys, and they're just, just grinding it out. I wanted to see the Protocol Labs guys. I just missed them when I was in Palo Alto. Um, I just didn't have time to catch up with them. But they were on, they were on, my, uh, on my list of people to see. But they, um, just to see these, like, these guys just smashing stuff out. And uh, I remember I was in uh, String Labs and they're having this meeting and uh, in their hacker house and um, Ben Lin, the L and BLS uh, signatures, uh, Bonnie Lynn Shackham signatures, which is like awesome, really interesting cryptography, right? Like those threshold signatures where you can have, you know, 200 to 400 pieces of a, uh, pieces of a key uh, to create a signature. Really interesting stuff. And so this is like the guy who figured it out or one of the, one of them. And uh, and so they're having this meeting, and then he runs into the, runs into the room with a beer, like guys, 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 I've got some crazy idea. Um, I don't know what it was. It was something to do with maths, which I, you know I never did well at maths, but um, it was really really cool to see see those guys like actually having ideas and kind of critiquing them and getting into them, and then being like, oh no, that won't work. But um, it was your, your classic like geniuses, you know. Um, and like Big Chain DB, those guys are really interesting just in that they have such a healthy team environment. Um, you know, it's, you know, I'm a laborer, right? I don't get how you guys work, you know, like people who work in front of computers. My first day in consensus, I, it was weird. I actually nearly had a panic attack because I'd never been in a room where people are sitting down and working before. And it was really eerie and a hard thing to actually come to terms with and learn that these people are actually doing work and um and to see like the big chain guys um and how like team oriented they were that was it was hilarious because people do all this team team stuff they get all excited and then they go sit at their desks it's just like where's the activity guys but that's it because we're making software um so that was really interesting um and the other one was um yeah the the different attitudes that people have to investing in this space so Polychain Capital is really interesting in that they see a multi-protocol future, right? And that's kind of like, that's like an obvious and pragmatic uh, view on all this stuff. Um, the, but it's like, but it's also how you actually, how do you select what you think is actually going to work and um, what actually makes for a good investment? And there are lots of, uh, people have a lot of ideas like, um, I've always been really good friends with uh, Jake Bruckman of CoinFund. I disagree with a lot of the ideas that he expresses about what's going to be big and what matters and stuff. But, um, but at the same time, he has uh, an amazing view into the space and, um, and quite similar to the Polychain guys. But then Outlier Ventures is this great, has, who is a, uh, they're like, um, Outlier Ventures is another fund like, like Polychain, but they, they focus entirely on the convergence of technologies. So they look at uh, IoT as an emerging technology, for example, and then blockchain as this other emerging technology. They're like, okay, put the two, put the two together. You get IOTA, you get an investment. 
uh, you know, you get a, you know, uh, an investment that fits their investment thesis. And that was really interesting to think about it like that, um, to actually think that rather than trying to predict how this is all going to play out, why don't you just find places where there's going to be high alpha, right? You know, places where you have two exponential technologies is pulling a term uh, that, that, as that really is. Um, and, uh, and seeing how they can provide like kind of this multiplicative effect on, uh, on investment, which, I mean, I, I've never thought about it like that, right? I'm like a buy and hold kind of guy. Uh, and then panic sell and then buy back uh, guilt ridden and, uh, and, and sorrowful, um, you know, for, for breaking faith. But, um, but yeah, it was cool to see all of those different, uh, those different approaches to investment. And the different communities actually, right? So there's these different communities as well, like the, uh, the academic community, totally different from the enterprise community, which it's cool, again, working at Consensus, you get to see the enterprise guys alongside the, uh, the product guys and the, the kind of dap makers. And um, yeah, they just have their, they have their very, very different sensibilities. And everyone thinks that they're the best. Everyone thinks that their kind of their their ilk has has the best view of the stuff. But and everyone does have it in their own little way. And the um, hanging out with uh, I was in I went to Cornell, super hot. Like I mean, it's just like just beating down the um, the uh, the sun over there. And um, I was hanging out with Gun and um, you know Emin Gun Sara, and who's hilarious, like just hilarious. And some of his students. And he kind of gave me a tour of the place and we talked about all of the, um, all the various goings on that they have. I interviewed him, like extensive, extensive interview and um, just while, while touring around, uh, while touring around uh, Cornell University. And those guys are so smart and they see stuff that you never even thought about in, uh, in, these, like, in these, the designs of these protocols. You know, you look at stuff and it's like, oh, that's that, that's that, you know, nothing new under the sun. But it turns out some of these tiny little tweaks that people make, things like the ghost protocol and its specific implementation in Ethereum, we had like endless discussion about that because I wouldn't know, you know, I wouldn't know. I can see how it works and I can say it looks plausible to me. Um, plausibility is right. That's basically my measure for truth here. Well, I don't even have the word truth. I just have plausibility. But um, to see those guys really like dig down and um, and kind of explain the the advantages and shortcomings of all of these like meticulous uh these all these little designs and a lot of stuff and um in iota which i've obviously been looking at recently just as because it's just a great illustration of the of the dag you know and um and also in um and the threshold relay chain which is what string labs have been working on because that of course becomes your own little your own little research project because you go and you see these various uh various um teams and you become obsessed with the work that they're doing so that was another really interesting thing was to meet these different communities, especially the academics, because I've never had anything to do with academics before. So that was really cool, um, really cool to, to run into. Let's take a short break to talk about Jax. Jax is your wallet, your complete user interface to cover all your blockchain needs. I've been using it and I've been loving it. Now, Jax supports a lot of different cryptocurrencies. I suppose Bitcoin, Ether, Litecoin, Ethereum Classic, Zcash, Augurep, and they're adding many more. Keep responding to users' needs. Now, with Jax, the nice thing is that you can manage all of those coins within a single wallet and you are in control of your own private keys. They're not on their server. And this 
a single 12 word seed that you can use to back up your wallet, all your coins and sync them across different devices. Talking about devices, they're on pretty much any device that you can think of. You can get it on PC, Mac, Linux, you can get it on smartphones like Android and Apple and iPhone, you can get it on tablets or even, there are even browser extensions for Chrome and Firefox. And on top of that, in JAX, you can actually exchange different cryptocurrencies for each other because they've integrated a shapeshift. And more partnerships and integrations are coming down the line in 2017 that are going to make JAX even better. So JAX is really making blockchain and cryptocurrencies accessible for the masses, easy to use for the masses. Make sure to, sure to get your own JAX wallet at JAX.io or you can get it from any of the app stores you are using. We'd like to thank JAX for their support of Epicenter. One, one thing that, that strikes me as really interesting out of everything you just went through there is, uh, is how how interesting it must be to, you know, meet all these different teams that, of course, all think they're the best, um, you know, because I mean, when, when you work for a company, when you're, when you're working at a startup, like, of course, like, you're the best, you're doing the, you know, the best work, you're doing the most innovative stuff. But, you know, not necessarily recognizing that you know, there are other really passionate teams that are doing really good stuff, you know, uh, basically, you know, maybe a couple blocks away from you. And then, and one thing also that must be really, uh, really kind of fascinating to see is moving from from team to team and seeing the different cultures in every one of those teams so like the you know the company culture but then also in the context of like a broader like you know geographical sort of uh, culture of that country where you're in uh must must be really cool to see like how say for instance consensus is so different from like Beijing db or any of the other teams that you worked with oh totally yeah the uh the one of the funniest things is how you know, the US thinks it's the center of the world. And then you go to, um, and I love, I always make fun of the US. I'm a citizen, by the way, so I'm allowed to make fun of the US. You guys aren't uh, allowed to make jokes at the expense of um, of that great nation. Uh, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> you know, Europe has so much diversity that there's a different understanding of how the world works in Europe, to how it work, to how it is in the US, where you're bombarded with endless US propaganda, right? And endless US-centric viewpoints. And, uh, and people, there's so much there that you don't have to look outside the walls of that, of that country to get a lot of what you need. But say Europe, I mean, there's so much diversity there. People have these really hold a lot of different viewpoints simultaneously that you just don't have, uh, you don't see that same, that same thing in the US. Um, but at the same time, the US has this like epic pioneering culture and drive just so much hard work you know i mean like those guys are it's almost pathological uh, probably not almost it's probably outright pathological they work so hard there and um and i mean not that people don't work hard elsewhere but just that is something that really characterizes that uh, that space and then you go to um you go to say countries like um australia and i've been trying to figure out why is australia why is sydney so big in blockchain and why are, why, is, why are Australian lawyers so interested? Because if there's one thing, like Australia is leading the world in blockchain law. And that is a really, like they, they're also um, the secretariat of the ISO technical committee for blockchain standardization is, uh, is Standards Australia. So they're actually hosting the, uh, the, the standards um, the you know the the standards body that is that is figuring out these the uh, 
ISO standards. And that's, it's bizarre. They don't even have, they have a lot going on there. They have a lot of great people. Um, but in that, like, in that room, I remember actually being in an ISO meeting and there's like no technical people. It's all lawyers. And, um, which is fine because law is just a different, uh, it's just a different standard you interoperate with. And it's, it's the right way of thinking actually about stuff. Um, but yeah, the, um, those guys, and then who else was there? Even Eastern, even the different coasts, you know, like San Francisco and Palo Alto have a totally different attitude to, to stuff uh, than, uh, than New York does. <clears throat> because presumably on the New York side, you've got these, this finance orientation and this enterprise orientation. And on the, on the, the um, West Coast, you have this kind of snooty, oh, we're in Silicon Valley. We make, you know, we're billionaires every day, you know. Um, and so there's, there's these two different, uh, two very different cultures there, yeah. And I, I guess just sort of during your trip as well is when this whole ICO thing continued to explode, or maybe that was even a bit afterwards, because I think this is just one of the things that is incredible to watch currently. And I was reading this, article the other day uh which we discussed before the show briefly but it was on cnnbc uh, cnbc where the, the claim is that in the last two months june and july more money was raised through icos globally than through venture than in seed rounds and and angel financing rounds and this is not just for the blockchain industry but for all internet technology which is completely crazy did you already see that or i guess that wasn't so much the case yet that you know everybody comes up and you says i want to do an ico too this is funny because it happened right i remember so the whole trip started actually with blockchain nz which was a conference that was put on in new zealand awesome conference um and uh and that was right when I think Ether had hit like, I don't know, 20 or $30. And uh, everyone was just glowing. People just couldn't like contain their smiles, you know. Um, people looking like smug and like, yes, finally, I, I, we picked a winner. I knew this was going to happen. I knew this was going to happen. I told you, man. Like, <laughs> there was a lot of that going around. And um, so it was this trip actually coincided with that whole, uh, with that whole rise. And I remember being in, um, after that, I was in, in Mumbai. And uh, I was with Andrew Keys, who's your classic kind of trader, enterprise guru. He's actually one of the most important people in, um, in blockchain in that he is good at speaking with uh, finance people. Um, he, uh, he sp he's one of the uh, principal architects of Enterprise Ethereum. He started the, um, the Microsoft relationship. Um, so he's like, he's like a really key figure, but he's this kind of hilarious roly-poly trader guy and i remember we had like these really bad hotels and he's at one point he's like that's it i'm moving us all to the taj and so andrew keys moved us to the taj mahal palace which is the one of the nicest hotels in india um and you know we had these rooms overlooking like you know the gateway to india all this stuff it was incredible and sitting by the uh sitting by the pool and talking to him about how this was going and the momen the momentum of all this stuff. And then subsequently, you know, this uh, an absurd luxury and then subsequently going on that trip and watching and watching the price rise and the enthusiasm 
and the different attitudes that people again yeah this is funny seeing different people's attitudes to the uh to the price rise was was really interesting and i don't know though i don't know about a lot of the ideas that people have about this there's something fishy going on with it um i think you know i don't like the do you know the fat protocol investment thesis yeah sure is that right? You know, that it seems so logical, but it just seems like it might not be right. You know, it seems like it might be the case that the protocols are really just a payment gateway to this stuff. And because all the money is kind of going in. Just for the listeners, maybe who are not aware of this, uh, we should do a, po- a podcast about this at some point. I think we talked about it actually with Olaf in the Polychain episode. But basically, it's the idea that in the in the past, you had these protocols like HTTP, SMTP, etc. And, and they create a lot of value, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't, you know, monetized. And then all the value that was really monetized was built on top, you know, people building Facebook and Google and uh, Gmail and, and all that. And basically the argument of FAT protocol is that you have this kind of uh, switch where the protocols themselves get monetized. Most of the money gets made there and then people build applications on top, but not so much money is in that. So I think that's, that's essentially also the, the investment thesis. I think that's driving, you know, Polychain and, and many of the investors in, in all these protocols. Right. But is that really the case? Uh, you know, that's the Union Square Ventures are the guys, I was just reading that blog post uh, yesterday, um, who who kind of really championed the FAT protocol idea. But I don't know, you know, I, it just there's something, something about it just doesn't jive with me. There's a few things. One is the cyclical nature of it. Like how many people are really cashing out? I mean, honestly, I bought a secondhand car and a boat that's very, very secondhand. Um, you know, I mean, not much money from, you know, I did, have not cashed out much money at all. I mean, that's like, that was like $50,000 in total. And that's my present to myself for New Zealand dollars. So probably that's like 34,000 US dollars. And that's it. Like, oh, I've done it. I've made it big. I've got a, I've got a secondhand boat and a, and a car that's less than 10 years old. I don't actually think it is less than 10 years old, but um, you know, I, people aren't actually cashing out big time. Some people are, but a lot of people are keeping it in there and it's just a merry-go-round, right? Where they make money in their ICO. So they, um, you know, then they cash out of that and back into Ether, but they don't sell it, you know, or, or Bitcoin. And then they invest in the next thing. And so you inflate these prices, but, but there's very little sell side pressure to remove, uh, to remove value from, fiat, from uh, crypto into fiat. And so... I think that this, when people look at those market capitalizations, that's, those are not, comparing those with, say, the, uh, the valuations of companies or industries, it's not apples and apples. Uh, it's, it's not well understood what these valuations, what these valuations are that we're, that we're seeing. That kind of incestuous nature of this ecosystem where that capital stays in there and it just goes on this kind of, this hamster wheel um, of moving between these products and looking really plausible is um, kind of affects what, how it affects how this is actually, uh, how this appears and how the price dynamics and, and, and the price dynamics of all this stuff. And, uh, and I think that's a big part of the, um, of the, of the ICO bubble. Although you should call it a token launch because that does not imply a contract of any form. 
Um, specifically, it does not imply that it's a security. Uh, but the one thing that I found really interesting, and I've had actually tons of mixed reviews talking to all of these legal people that I've somehow made friends with recently, but it does seem really influential, and that's the SAFT that the Polychain guys came up with, the simple agreement for future tokens. And what is interesting about it is that with the way they did that on CoinList, people were incentivized to invest fiat, heavily incentivized to invest fiat. And it looks like that might be a new avenue for fiat to enter the ecosystem. And I think through this weird roundabout way, the, uh, the SAFT might be one of the driving forces behind uh, kind of future value gains in, in the space in general, especially in, in the, the, uh, the token launch uh, space. Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, I spent a lot of time looking at the whole final coin and coin list and all that was going on. And I agree, it's very interesting and, and we are seeing some, some new developments there. And, and I think you're totally right. I mean, what, what's happening there also, what happened, I think, with Filecoin is that they, they really reached a very different investor base in, in that they did, uh, you know, a lot of traditional VCs to put in money, I think, and traditional Silicon Valley people. And then, of course, because of CoinList being essentially tied to Angel List, which again is like a, a place where all these people do invest in basically Sil Silicon Valley startups and do these angel rounds. So that's essentially how you can kind of uh, link those two together. So I, I, I think you're totally right. And, you know, I was last week, I was at some lunch in Berlin where, you know, some VC, they need to do something on ICOs. And it seems like uh, everybody is kind of getting into that. And, and I, I wanted to speak about this a little bit more in detail, actually, from, from a few angles. One is I saw this article uh, the other day, which was also very interesting. So some hedge fund administrator said, that they had 62 of their clients, 62 of those hedge funds were all preparing to put money into cryptocurrencies. And, and that's just, you know, that's one hedge fund administered. Now there's a few thousand hedge funds in the world, right? I don't know how, what percentage of hedge funds uh, that administrator is managing, but let's say now 10%, does that mean 10% of hedge funds are getting into like investing in cryptocurrencies? I think it sounds very plausible. If it's one single one and 62 of those, and, 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 and this is just going to take on a crazy dynamic because also if, if, I, if I'm a hedge fund, right? And if, I'm, uh, if I know that the other hedge funds are going to get into this thing and it's still a pretty small total market cap, you know that the price is going to go up, the more people go in. So I'd rather be first. And, and I think we are really at the point where it's become common assumption i think in the finance world that this is happening and money is moving into space in the big time and of course that means you want to be you want to join that trend and you want to be for, before the others in that same trend so and i've also another thing that i've been thinking about in that aspect is is, is the sort of weird dynamic that's going to create because all of a sudden the, the amount of money that's there is just orders of magnitude bigger than the amount of actually quality projects, right? So I think you're going to see, and, and especially if you take this kind of um, portfolio approach where you say, okay, you're going to put a little bit of money and diversify and lots of assets. It just means huge amounts of money are going to flow into all these different projects that don't necessarily have any, um, any merit because also the people don't know, right? They, they don't understand the details. I mean, it's already like that, you know? It's already like that. I mean, there's so much garbage. I mean, 
even in the even in the big protocols, I see a lot of great technology, but just because there's great technology doesn't mean we need it. Zcash, you know, um, like I don't, you know, I know lots of people like that. I don't really get it. I mean, you know, zero knowledge proofs. It's not like a, I, I, it's it's a useful thing to exist. I don't understand why Zcash would exist long term uh, when you could just, ex- you know, um, build uh, zero knowledge proofs into a smart contract enabled um, platform. Um, but you know, because it has value, people will um, people will pump it and uh, and develop on it and and build a plausibility structure around that value uh, and kind of treat it as a lightning rod, I think, to attract some of that investment you're talking about. And I think, yeah, it's it is weird. It is weird, Brian. I don't know. This is it makes me uneasy because it's just. I want the money to go to the right places and it seems, you know, and it seems it makes it's uncomfortable seeing, you know, too much money go to uh dumb money go places, you know. It's a strange time. It's kind of it's becoming too mainstream. I wish it was weird still, you know. Yeah, my 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 thoughts exactly and it's it's interesting to see how, you know, if this is the case that money is coming in through these in, in sort of more institutional avenues, you know, like a few years ago when we were talking about Bitcoin and Bitcoin becoming massively adopted, it, it was always unclear how the money would start coming in because of because of these frictions with the existing payment system. But now, you know, what what does it mean if all of a sudden all this money coming in is just coming from the same you know, institutional investors uh, and hedge funds that have been funding technology for the last, you know, 20, 30 years. Uh, are, are we just coming into, are we just creating the same system once again, but on some somewhat more decentralized rails? Yeah. And are they even decentralized? I mean, right. Yeah. You know, like I was just at a bloody, you know, a mining factory in, uh, in Iceland. And that thing is tiny compared to what, um, to what Genesis has around the place. Um, they're very, very tight-lipped about it because it's so competitive. But I bet they have 20 times that facility and elsewhere, probably even more. Uh, you know, And so that being the case, what if you're controlling Genesis Mining's... Uh, not Genesis Mining, they're just called Genesis. Genesis is also a mining company in Western Australia, so <laughs> you know, it's, easy to, um, it's easy to trip over your companies. But they have this... Uh, they have this uh, mining ma- mining farm management software called Hive, where you spin up your mining farm, you build the mining farm, and then you manage it using their software. And because Genesis makes the best software, and they'll you know, and they they can tweak your miners and everything, and make it all real, 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 make you make you the gravy. Uh, they wind up in control of your miners, and so I bet Genesis Mining is the biggest uh, is the biggest miner on every network. I bet. You know, you have these pools and stuff, but I'll bet that they hold the hold the keys to. Um, I mean, actually, no, no. Of course, Bitcoin's in uh, Bitcoin's in China, but you know, I bet they hold the keys to a lot of uh, a lot of cryptocurrencies, especially with all their graphics cards. Of course, they do. They could totally just totally attack just about any cryptocurrency, um, any 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 public blockchain with with all of those graphics cards. You know, so it's not really it's not really decentralized. It's it's notionally decentralized, and I suppose that's probably all you need. You don't need to be really decentralized. You just need to, everyone just has to believe that it's decentralized and it seems to work. So b- before we wrap up, I'd like to come back to, to your your world tour and uh, you know just get your thoughts on you know, who was the most interesting person you talked to or who, who were you most excited to talk to uh, uh, in, in all of this 
you know, all these people you've met and that you've interviewed? Wow, that's hard. I mean, I spoke with a computer science professor whose name uh, eludes me at, at this moment, who explained to me that uh, that blockchain was about the coming of a new age of Brahmin <laughs> um, and, uh, in, in India. And it was, he, you know, we talked about it for ages. He's like, yeah, man, this is crazy. This is like straight out of the Vedas and stuff. And, uh, or something like that. Um, I, don't, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not schooled up on, uh, on uh, Hinduism or anything. But, um, but that was a really, really interesting conversation to see. Um, another really interesting one was with this guy uh, in a similar vein, uh, this guy, Ben Vickers, who runs a, uh, who's in, based in London, and he, he operates a, uh, an art gallery. And he, ha- he was really, really interested in, uh, in religious texts and, texts and the relevance that blockchain had to, or the, compa- the, the comparisons that could be made between blockchain and some other, uh, and, um, and some other, and some of the, some cultures around like copying text and stuff over the years. He was like obsessed with the stuff. He was, this was his thing that he was researching and had been doing really hard for an extended period. Super smart guy. And, um, and so it was actually encountering the opinions that you never thought you'd run into, right? That is weird. You know, the whole religion thing, comparing it to religion is strange, but it's an easy comparison to make. And so like, those were the really interesting ones. Honestly, it's, it was a real pleasure to hang out with the Polychain guys. I've talked to those about that so much, um, but that's just because they're real cool guys and they have, um, I had some really productive conversations with them. I had a great discussion with Jake Bruckman at that EOS party. Were you guys at that EOS party? You know, that huge, you know, they had the stilt walkers and stuff. It was like on a roof. It's like, guys, I don't know. You should stay away from the edge there. I mean, that's, um, it was, it was a strange choice of, uh, strange choice of foot, footwear for a rooftop party. But, um, <clears throat> I was talking to Jake Bruckman about, um, value of cryptocurrency and these uh, tangled hierarchies in, that are represented in this book called Girdlesha Bark by this guy, Douglas Hofstadter. Awesome book real tripped out it's one of the coolest it's 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 the best book it's as good as the bible honestly even even better um but uh but um it was that was a really really great conversation one that stood out you find it's not the people it is it's the conversations and those encounters that you have with crypto people that you can't have with anyone else because no one else is in a state of such a state of disbelief and uh and excitement and i think at the end of the day, that's what makes this place, this whole space so interesting. I mean, you could, you could, I could find so many people who just blew my mind, who I never would have, never would have thought I'd even run into, never knew existed, but uh, gave me insight that I, I didn't have before. I mean, I spoke with a ton of people. I spoke with Italic. I spoke with, um, um, who else did I actually speak with who was famous? Probably no one. Pretty much the only famous person I think I spoke to was, uh, was Vitalik. But, and, and, you know, we had like really great conversations. It was really insightful, but it's just those weird things, those weird little encounters you have with crypto people that really, uh, that really stand out always. I mean, that's what makes this space so great. Cool. Well, Arthur, thanks so much for coming on. It was a pleasure uh, hearing about your, your journey and hopefully we'll see you again soon, uh, both in person and, and online. Hey, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it was great to hang out with you guys, actually. It's hilarious to see people in the flesh who you've only heard, heard or seen on screens before. So... Yeah, no, absolutely. It's been a pleasure. And uh, yeah, thanks heaps, Brian. And thanks as well, Sebastian, for, uh, for, you know, for having me on and, uh, and keeping me entertained.
Cool. Well, of course, we're going to link to, to Arthur's, Arthur's podcast in the show notes so people can check that out. Actually, I really want to check out this uh, legal series because that sounds interesting. Um, so, yeah, thanks so much for coming on. And uh, thanks so much for our listener for once again tuning in. So we're going to be back next week. Uh, but in the meantime, if you want to support the show, you can do so by leaving an iTunes review for us to help new people find the show and, and makes us happy too. So thanks so much. We look forward to seeing you next week.